This is our third week here on honor your parents, honor your father and your mother. So let's read it real quick. Deuteronomy 5.16, honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So just to spend a brief moment on last week, we... We're digging into God's word and seeing that in in God's order of creation, a beautiful order was intentional by God that God desires to bless children through their parents and that God has unbelievable, bounteous blessings. This is one of the only Ten Commandments that has a, a promise right in the middle of it that God wants to bless us through our parents. But, If we don't posture ourselves as willing to humbly receive, we'll miss it. God calls us to look for the good that our parents have to offer. God recognizes no parent is perfect. But when we look for the good, wouldn't we have that posture in our hearts that's humble, that's willing to receive, that's looking for the good? And we will be abundantly blessed by the good that they have. But if we don't look for the good, we focus on the imperfect, we focus on the the negative, then we will miss the blessings, the many, many blessings that God has and wants to give us through them. So we were looking at that last week, and it was really the call on the, the, the child side, if you will, to posture our hearts with humility that's ready to receive. And I want to dig in this morning on that fifth fifth commandment again, because I absolutely believe it has important, broader application in our lives than simply biological parents. It's really one of the most crucial commandments in regard to relationships with other people in the world and has everything to do with how we posture our heart in general towards God-given leaders. The devil wants us to have that critical spirit that just nitpicks and rebels, but God wants us to have a humble spirit that receives so that we don't miss out on our blessings. And it starts with the parents, but as we looked at last week, it absolutely expands out into the posture that we ultimately have with God. That's why Jesus said, be childlike, otherwise you're not going to receive the kingdom. It's an intentional parallel. But I want to draw the parallel this morning of this parenting relationship and the body of Christ. God designed the body of Christ to be an extended spiritual family, no question where we can receive those same similar type blessings of parents and children. And this, in fact, really became the new normal in the early church, especially because many families became divided over Jesus Christ. Many biological families became divided over Jesus Christ, as Jesus predicted. Listen to this. Matthew 10, 34 to 39. Do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. This is Jesus talking. The Prince of Peace. The one whom the angels about pronounced peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. 
I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be of those of his own household. Ooh, that's a strong word. For whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So this is ultimately about allegiance. This is about masters. This is about loves, which Jesus talks about all over the place. You cannot have two masters. It does not work for Jesus. It's one or the other. It's him or nobody. And there are different, absolutely, completely different ways of life that begin to emerge when you ask the question, is Jesus Lord or not? Is Jesus the Savior that you need or not? Is Jesus the way, the truth, and the life the, the only way by which humanity can come back to the Father or not. I mean, the Bible makes, Jesus makes about himself absolutely exclusive claims of salvation. And Jesus is serious about it. Jesus is serious that he is the Savior and no one else. And so he says, when it comes down to it, not that it's the goal, but it's the reality. This is a description of reality. Of course, he's the Prince of Peace, and he wants all to come to salvation. But the reality is, he knows the hearts. He knows some will perish. Some will reject him. And so at that point, Jesus is looking into the reality of what he knows is going to happen, and he says, in that way, I came to bring a sword. Who's really for me and who's not? And sometimes that's going to divide households. But what we see in the rest of the New Testament is a picture emerging that the early church, by God's design, was a place where God wanted to recreate and redeem those blessings of family, where parents pass on the goodness of a life of Christ and children receive and learn how to live that life of Christ. There were new spiritual fathers and mothers and sons and daughters that came under God's good care in the redeemed family of God. I want to show us an example here. One of the most powerful ones I can find in the New Testament, this relationship that emerges between Paul and Timothy. 1 Corinthians 4, 14 to 17, Paul writes this, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides or tutors in Christ, you do not have many fathers. I became your father in Jesus Christ through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. Let's just pause there for a moment. That's very fatherly language, right? that he, Paul recognizes, we're going to talk about Timothy in a moment here and really drill down into this very special relationship he has with Timothy, but that even how he sees this whole church as his beloved children. There's many people out there that can guide you in Christ or tutor you or teach you information about Christ, but he's talking in this spiritual family language of you do not have many fathers in Christ. And so he obviously 
explicitly, is intentionally picking up this family language, this parental language. This is a lens of what he sees God doing in the body of Christ. This is a Holy Spirit-inspired apostolic lens of what God is now doing in the body of Christ. He's redeeming and recreating God's original design of family. Where family has failed us in the natural, God wants to redeem it in the spiritual. And so Paul is 100% fully aware of that to the point where as he's writing a letter, he's appealing to them as their father. And so what he says is, I urge you to imitate me. Now, that's a, that's, that is really strong language. Imitate me. But I'll, I'll tell you, like, I, you know, I've been studying leadership and mentorship and everything for a very long time, and that sounds really weird. Imitate me. Be like me. You know where it feels 100% natural? My three sons. It's so natural because they're going to imitate somebody and become men. It better as heck be me or else when I stand before God, I will not be giving a good account of my stewardship of my sons. So it's come very naturally as they are looking. They're, they're tiny. They know nothing. And so it's like mom and dad, given by God, designed by God, show them the way of life. And so it becomes very natural and normal to say, this is how we do it. This is how we think about that. Watch me on this. Imitate me on this. And so it's, it's very parental language, right? And so Paul picks that up, and he's gotten to the point with this group of people, and we got to remember, churches back then are very small. They're house churches. As far as we know, the people of Corinth might have been 40 people in a house at the time. So he's gotten to know them very well. He planted the church. He started the church. He spent a long time there. And so he's developed a very close relationship where the way he's able to write to them is, imitate me. You've seen my ways of life in Christ. Do it like me. So it's this very fatherly parental language. And then what's really fascinating about it is he, in that call to imitate him, says, I've sent you an example I've left with you an example now that I'm gone. I've left with you an example to remind you of my ways of life in Christ so you can imitate me, and it's my son, Timothy. It's very interesting. Here we go. So he says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my way, my way of life in Christ. People need living examples. They don't need just information. We talked about this three Sundays ago. The most powerful thing you can do as a parent, and we dug into God's word to prove it. It's all over the Bible. The most powerful thing you can do as a godly parent is have a living, vibrant, personal, powerful, present relationship with God. So that out of the natural overflow of your life, you have something to pass on to your kids that is a living example, that is, that is incarnated, it's made real. It's not just a theory, it's not just your abstract beliefs, and it's certainly not things you say you believe and do differently all the time. Now, we're all going to mess up, and kids are great at pointing out our hypocrisy. I've had it happen too many times. But that's where it's like, hey, guess what? You know what's also a normal part of the Christian life? Repentance. 
and showing them that you don't have it all together and you know you don't and you're, and you're not trying to pretend that you do. So when they do call you out, you can say, you know what? You're right. I messed up. That itself is a living example of the Christian life. And we don't have it all together. Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Meaning if you want more of the kingdom of God to break into your life, which I hope that rings a bell, that's the whole point of life now is following Jesus. Jesus said, repent and believe. It's this ongoing process where we're learning, we're growing, we're recognizing our shortcomings, we're having our minds changed as to who God is and to who we are in his eyes, and we walk with confidence in that direction because of what his promises are in our life. But it's ongoing growth. So the most important thing we can do as parents is have a real, authentic, living relationship with Jesus, and it just gets passed on. And Paul's saying the exact same thing here. Exact same thing. He's saying that it's been passed on to Timothy, and now Timothy has picked it up to such a degree he can represent me in my absence, and you can watch him, and you are being imitators of me. He says, that's my true son. It's a beautiful thing. So Paul became a spiritual father to Timothy. I want to walk us through a little bit of the narrative of the, the New Testament where we see how does this happen? And most importantly for us, what can we learn from it about God's heart for the body of Christ becoming this extended spiritual family? So the first place we're introduced to him is the book of Acts on Paul's missionary journey, one of them, where Paul's passing through a very heavily Greek-influenced area of Lystra, and it says this in Acts 16. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy. So he's already a follower of Jesus. That's the point. The son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. And by that, they mean believer in Christ. But his father was a Greek. Not a believer is the parentheses. He was well, Timothy, was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. Let's pause for there. This is one of the most simple but important aspects for living out the reality that God has created the body of Christ to be an extended spiritual family. And it's right here. The mentor has a very clear mindset. I'm going to invest in the next generation. I'm going to look for opportunities to invest in the next generation. I want to take the good things God has done in my life, and I know I don't have it all together and I'm not done yet, but I know Christ has transformed me, and I want to honor God by looking for those opportunities to pass that on to the next generation. It's absolutely essential. Someone, I, I might be Billy Graham, somebody famous once said that the, the body of Christ is always only one generation away from being extinct. It's true. If it doesn't get passed on to the next generation, which is happening in various places, it, it goes away. Now, I have great confidence in the Lord and his body of Christ, and the church is flourishing in many, many, many places. If you take charismatic Christianity as a religion in of itself, it is the fastest growing religion in the world. That's very encouraging. But there's also places that don't, there are places, especially in the United States of America, where church is declining and shrinking and disappearing. And so it's, this is absolutely a, a fact 
that if it doesn't get passed on to the next generation, it disappears. And where the places that it's shrinking and disappearing, that's exactly what's happening. The prior generation, the, excuse me, let's, let's reverse it. The younger generation isn't seeing in the older generation that vibrant, authentic, powerful, personal relationship with God that changes life and transforms life. And so it doesn't look real, so they look to other things. So the mindset is, the mentor says, I have been called by God to invest in the next generation. So to the older, wiser generations among us here, are you looking to intentionally invest in the next generation? And I want to clarify, that can be within the walls of the church or outside the church. Let me give a quick example of my parents. They're, they're here. They're, they're, you know, they just kind of like, you know, they're my parents, so they always come up as examples. <laughs> but they, I'm going to give it a good example of they mentor inside and outside the church. They have that mindset to invest in the next generation, and so they've done it in 101 different ways, both through the formal life groups, discipleship groups, Bible studies, all the leadership stuff we've done, and I'll, I'll be honest, and at the same way showed an abundance of humility because they've let their biological son train them in all of those things so that then they go out and and lead and mentor others. So that's just a double bonus blessing for them, for us, for all of us. So I heard an honest testimony of like two weeks ago, they had two of the awesome young couples in this church that are in their like late 20s, early 30s, just over for dinner on a Friday night to fellowship, to enjoy each other's company. That's a beautiful thing. It's intentional though. It's intentional. Because there's value that God says in the generations fellowshipping and then passing on that mutual blessing to one another. It's not just one-sided, but make no mistake, there is a honor and respect coming from that younger generation to them, looking to their lives, saying, wow, there, are a lot, there is a lot of good kingdom fruit. These are good people to hang around. And they are intentionally ready to pass it on. So, I mean, from the world standpoint, you know, 29, 30-year-olds don't just go over to, you know, hang out with 68, 70-year-olds on a Friday night for fun. The world says don't do that. I mean, I'm not trying to be funny. I'm trying to be serious. This very much, our culture has lost honoring your elders. It's like put them out to pasture. Oh, they don't even know what a tweet is. They're so out of it. Yeah, clean up your room. <laughs> you know, it's like, you ain't got it all together either. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'm talking to myself, you know. No, I'm talking to my kids. But is that not now? Have, have, do we honor our elders well in, in our culture? Do we, do we carry that honor that says, man, they've been through it? I want to learn from their wisdom. They're 20, 30, 40, 50 years ahead of me. They've been through the battles. They have successes. I want to learn from that. Or do they, oh, they're just out of it. You know, they can't work the computer like me, so whatever. Boomer. That meme, as funny in some ways as it is, and it's thrown around in our house once in a while, is, the, is, is a sad description of, I don't honor you and you have nothing to offer me. I'm sorry you're missing out on the abundance of blessings that are available in the body of Christ. And then, I'll, you know, one, one more example there from, from my parents. From, I'll jump on my dad's bandwagon here for a minute. I know that he's also at his office, at his job, at his engineering firm. He's been there for 40 plus years, earned the credibility, earned the wisdom. 
Now, as he's in kind of a phasing out of the day-to-day running of the business, everything, he has taken on, I can't remember, I've lost count, it's like eight or ten of the young engineers who he has offered and said, I'll meet with you one-on-one and let's just talk about life. And so they go through various leadership books, and he's very upfront about, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm not saying you have to be to work, you know, to work here, but I'm going to share life stories, leadership stories from my perspective of where I get my strength. Where does my victory come from? It's not just because I know how to do math and engineering. There's a reason why for 40 years this business has thrived, and he's very upfront about it. And I think it's awesome. He's going into a, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's not a Christian engineering firm. It's an engineering firm that has got awesome Christian influence in it, you know? So this is him being kingdom-minded out in the workplace, saying, how can I pass on the life of Christ to the next generation, whether it's in the church or outside of the church? Get creative in how, if that's where you're at in life, you can pass on the goodness of God to the next generation. And you'll have opportunities. Sometimes you'll be able to be very explicit. Sometimes you have to be more implicit. But the heart of Paul is there. Invest in the next generation. Furthermore, Paul has a mindset of like, hey, who's next? Who's next? Who's God going to bring next so that I can invest in? Not coincidentally, right before Paul and Timothy, uh, right before Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, something happened. He had sent Mark home for quitting on the team. Acts 15, 36 to 41. Right before we were introduced to Timothy, here's what we find. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and Silas and, or excuse me, Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. Hey, the Bible's real, man. The Bible is real. This one's not pretty. Okay? But it's serious. Mark and Barnabas, Mark, I mean, Paul's like, hey, you know what? Let's go back, kind of just, you know, loose paraphrasing here. Let's go back and visit all these churches that we, you know, spent like a couple years planting churches, strengthening, preaching the gospel, getting a foundation set, getting to know them, et cetera, et cetera. Let's go back and visit, see how they're doing and strengthen them. And Barnabas is like, awesome, let's roll. And Paul's like, wait, you know, that guy? Nope. And this is Barnabas's cousin, by the way. And he's like, he vouches for him. Oh, come on, man, let let, let him come with us. Paul's like, he abandoned us last time. He literally quit in the middle of it because it was too hard. He left us out there. He left us hanging. We let him be part of the team, and he quit in the middle of it. He didn't persevere. He deserted us. He's not coming. And Barnabas is, I think, probably most likely, it's his cousin. There's a family connection. He's like, come on, man, let's give him another chance. Paul's like, nope. He abandoned us. And now, this becomes an issue between Paul and Barnabas, that they have such a sharp disagreement, they separate. And they go their separate ways. Now, good news is, long story short, we see a beautiful reconciliation by the end of the Bible with Paul and both Barnabas and Mark, to where he speaks very highly of them. 
But here, let's make no mistake. This is a sharp disagreement. This is what we call in our house a kerfuffle. All right? This is not pretty. This is not Holy Spirit filled. This is just you're arguing and you go your separate ways. That's what the Bible says happened. So even the best of leaders have hard times where this isn't necessarily a model for how you want to do it. A sharp disagreement, actually the literal Greek means a convulsion. They are convulsing at one another to the point where they're like, well, I don't even want to be with you anyways. And they go in different ways. This this is a tough day. But there's a good word for the younger generation in here. When a mentor gives you or gives us an opportunity to serve, to learn, to grow, our job is to be faithful, to follow through with our commitments, even if it's not always fun. The mindset is it's a privilege to have someone investing in us. And so it's our blessing to be faithful, to follow through. If not, then like Mark with Paul, that mentor might have every right to just move on and find someone else who's willing to follow through on the opportunities given them. And so Paul did. And he said, who's next? Because I'm going to keep investing. Even if I get abandoned by one, I'm not giving up. This is God's heart. So who's next? So he goes to Timothy. So they go through the towns and villages and, and begin to spend time together. But what's very interesting to see is not coincidentally, Paul chooses to take under his wing a young man who not only was reported to be a faithful follower of Jesus, so he's already a disciple, which is a big compliment in the Luke in Luke Acts uh, narrative. He's already a disciple. He's a follower of Jesus. We don't know exactly how. Maybe it was from Paul's original missionary journey. His mother has great faith. His grandmother has great faith. Paul mentions them in the epistles. But what we also know is he was one who was willing to stay, take a stand against his earthly father. Now, in that day and age, in that culture, I mean, we've come so far in this culture where that's not necessarily a big deal. In that culture, it's massive. You are like self-disowning all of your rights, all of your inheritance, all your name, your good name. This is where Jesus is talking about. Count the cost to follow me. There will be a sword that, that causes division in families at times. Not because he wants it, but what happened? The father was so into the Greek culture, which we actually read in Acts 15 and 14 and 13, Paul's original visit to Lystra, Paul was doing such miracles, Paul and Barnabas were doing such miracles that these, uh, the followers in that town or the people in the village, they said, hey, these remind us of our gods, Zeus and Hermes. They've come down from heaven and they're in the flesh. And there was a very strong worship of these Greek gods in this very heavily Greek area. So who knows, maybe Timothy's dad was on that camp. That these, you know, we are, we are all about the Greek gods. Whatever, all we know is that he stayed with his Greek religion. He did not convert to Christianity, Christianity and therefore Timothy had to make a choice. Where is my allegiance? And he chose, he chose to bring that sword into the home that cut him off from all of the source of security and blessing and inheritance and identity in order to follow Jesus. Not coincidentally, Paul, under the inspiration of God, under the wise leadership, he says, I'll take him under my wing. And while Paul and Timothy made a connection through serving Jesus Christ together, 
it naturally grew into something very special. And I want to just highlight that for a moment. It naturally grew into something very special. It started, they made a connection around wanting to serve God together. And this is how 1 Thessalonians, Paul describes Timothy. This is the earliest letter Paul wrote. Most likely, scholars all think. This is the earliest letter. Timothy's already with him, but he hasn't known Timothy very long. And listen to how Paul describes Timothy. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in God's service in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you. So Timothy is described as a brother and a co-worker in the gospel. They serve together. He's a brother in Christ. Let's fast forward toward the end of Paul's life. Paul and Timothy have been now running together for probably two decades, and this is how Paul describes Timothy to Timothy in the first letter that Paul writes to him. Chapter 1, verse 2. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace and mercy, peace from God the Father. And now let's fast forward even further into the relationship. 2 Timothy 1, 2. To Timothy, my beloved child. Do you see a progression? From my brother in Christ and co-worker to my true child in the faith to my beloved child. That's, it's getting like more intimate every time to the point he, he's just my beloved child. He was my true son in the faith. He was my co-worker. He is my beloved child. Their relationship grew into Paul being a spiritual father that would go on and commend him to the Corinthian church, saying, this is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord. And so you see this, this natural progression, and that's, that's part of what's important for all of us is like these body of Christ relationships where the, God recreates and redeems those family relationships. These are not things that are forced. So we have a heart for it. We recognize that it's God heart, God, God's heart for it. There's a mindset, but what we see in Paul is it grew naturally over time. It started with serving together, co-workers, brother in Christ, and grew into something very, very special, intimate, even being my beloved son. Not every relationship is meant to go like that. And so that's where we don't put the pressure on of what the title is or how fast it happens or what exactly it looks like. I'm giving you one example of a rare but very, very special way in which God redeems the brokenness of earthly families and he provides in the body of Christ that spiritual family. And let's close here looking at this one primary thing that Paul is offering Timothy as a brother, as a mentor, and ultimately as a spiritual father. Go back to 1 Corinthians 4, 14 to 17. Read the whole thing and we'll see it. I do not write these things to you to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So there it is. I mean, it's the redeemed, recreated through the gospel, through this new covenant with the church. God is doing things 
where at times it becomes so close, so special, there's this parental relationship that has emerged through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my way of life in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. There is primarily one thing that Paul is offering Timothy as a brother, as a mentor, and ultimately a spiritual father. A way of life in Christ that is worth imitating. So there's the healthy challenge for all of us. Do you have a life worth imitating? Is what you're passing on to others around you the way of life in Christ? That's, what, that's all spiritual parenting is. It's simply passing it on. Pass on your way of life in Christ. And as we talked last week, as parents, one way or another, you are passing on your way of life. Let's hope it's in Christ. That's our hope. When we're in Christ, when we have that connection to Christ and we keep it and we steward it well, and as my wife was talking this morning, we, we do our part to be diligent, to worship to stay connected, to have our own childlike posture before God all the time, all the time, where we're simply his beloved children, so we come with humility, we come to receive, we come to worship, we come to grow, we come to learn, and as God does things in our life, what happens? Our cup overflows with fruit, and good parenting is simply passing on that fruit. By the grace of God, I live, so here's a victory in my life. Taste it. I couldn't do this but God did this, taste this. All the, the fruit of the Spirit to a, a, a humble parent, <laughs> to someone who has a childlike posture before God themselves, they know every good thing in life is a gift from God by grace. So all the victories, all the power, all the transformation you've received, all the fruit of the Spirit that is happening in your life, you know God gets the glory. So you say, this fruit, my beloved child, taste it. This is God's grace in my life. Let me, and I can show you, or I can tell you, you can imitate me. I can take you through this example of, this is how I couldn't do it on my own strength, but God. This is what my life looks like with God in it. This is not me on my own strength, on my own wisdom, for my own glory, with my own agenda, on my own skills. You know what, I've tried all that, and it, and it really stinks. It gets, it's empty every time. It bears stinky, bad fruit. But let me give you a story, son. This is God in my life. This is how he's changed me. This is how he's revealed himself to me. This is how I know he's powerful. This is how I know he's real. This is how I know he's present. And you're just passing out fruit. If you don't have authentic fruit to pass it out, don't try. <laughs> just go back and be a child before God. And when you got some authentic fruit to pass out, pass it out. That's what Paul has. Paul knows it. I mean, he's gotten to that point of life. He's, you know, he's old and he's not holding any punches anymore. He's like, I know I have a life worth imitating. You know, it's like, that's weird, right? It's weird to say that. But when you're a spiritual parent and you get old enough to know like, hey, I, I know how to go about life my own way and make a mess of it. It's awful. And I know how to live under the grace of God and see God do miracles. And I'm saying, please follow me, watch me. You don't need to make all those mistakes. 
You can learn from my mistakes, and you can learn to, to know the grace of God through me. My way of life in Christ. It's right there. And where I get so excited is I believe with all my heart that our church is right now ripe for this blessing of spiritual family. And it's already happening. It's already happening. I gave one little example, but I could go after many examples of how I already see the generations healthily interacting together, giving and receiving from one another. But I believe that there's a time right now where God's wanting to increase this. And so that's, where, that's why we're going after this a few weeks, just to get those healthy postures. Whereas those on, on the receiving end, we want to posture ourselves childlike to be able to look to and look for the good in the older generation. And then from the older generation, I know we've got people in here that have great fruit to pass on, fruit that the world says is not possible. Fruit of, you know, 30, 40, 50 years of healthy, vibrant, good marriage, which is a thing that's essentially disappearing. And we've got those people all over the place. They have good fruit to pass on. We've got people in this church that have been parents for 20, 30, 40, 50 years and great fruit, battle-tested. They've been through the highs and the lows, and then they, they have great wisdom to pass on. I love seeing the, the generation of this church, the older generation, who are so faithful and persevere, and they live out that Psalm 1 verse that talks about the tree that's planted that grows deep roots by the streams, and they're able to produce good fruit in every season. I look up to the, to the older generation in this church. They are ready to worship no matter what, and they're not faking it. It's the faith so deep, they're not tossed to and fro by the storms of life. Sure, it hits them. Sure, they feel it. Sure, when it's hot, it's hot. When it's cold, it's cold. But good fruit continues to bear in their life. As Psalm 1 says, they will prosper in all they do. Right there. That's good fruit to pass on. We could go on and on. We just got some wonderful people. And so I just am so excited to say, let's continue down this road, church. Let's be a church who recognizes that, that God designed the church to be an extension of his spiritual family. And without forcing it or being awkward or putting labels on it, there are going to be spiritual fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and, and sons and daughters. And God wants to bless those things. And so our job, I, I really think, for everybody is to posture our hearts in a way to be childlike where from anyone and everyone at any possible time, our hearts are postured willing to receive the good fruit that people have to pass on. Because it's not going to be necessarily, it's not going to be one mentor or one spiritual father and mother. I mean, you may have that Timothy type relationship, Timothy and Paul by, you know, after many years, and that's an awesome thing. But what I would encourage we see in the body of Christ is it's really just this big extended spiritual family. And you don't have to say, oh, just that guy or just that woman. But we can, we can receive from like that ex extended spiritual family in real life. You, you can, ex you know, you might have a, a weird uncle, but man, he's got that awesome perspective over there. And you still posture your heart childlike, ready to receive the good. And that's more like the body of Christ, where we posture our hearts to receive the good. And when we have good fruit to share, we're not shy to pass it on as testimony of this is what God can do. I couldn't do this on my own strength. This is what God is doing in my life. And that real fresh fruit.
that vibrant, personal, powerful testimony of what God has done and is doing in our lives, that strengthens, that encourages, that heals. That's us enjoying the blessings of this extended spiritual family. So we're already doing it, but let's just bless in the name of Jesus for it to continue. Let's pray. Dance a new dance like David